Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, certified religious transition and trauma recovery coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. Ugh. I'm so excited to be here tonight because I've been hearing back from so many of you talking about the last podcast on anger, and I've had several people say, you know, I didn't really know that I needed to talk about anger. I didn't really understand that that was something that I was experiencing or needed to process. I kind of understood it as, yeah, yeah, whenever I'm pissed off, then I want to talk about anger, but right now I feel okay. And I even had somebody comment, I think I'm angry, kind of low grade all of the time. And I didn't realize that until we started talking about anger. And I gave myself permission to sort of drop in and just get curious about what was hanging out in my body. Now, before we go any further, you guys, I'm kind of freaking out over here. I have new equipment. So I've got these huge headphones on and a different microphone. And it's so weird being able to hear myself speak as I'm speaking. So hopefully this will go well and the recording will be even better quality. I'm loving this. This is so fun, but I'm kind of freaking myself out over here. So I kind of feel like I'm not alone in this closet, which is insane. But today we're going to take that conversation one step further. Last week we talked about the gifts that are inherent in anger and how anger can help us get to know ourselves, how it can be an alarm bell, how it can let us know that there's something underneath the surface that we need to address. But rightfully so, there have been several of you who have come forward and said, but anger has been a problem in my life, or I'm really afraid I'm going to turn into my dad or my mom, or... I'm not sure why, but sometimes I will blow my lid at my kids and then I feel awful and I hate feeling awful. I hate feeling like the monster. That was a word I heard used a lot this week was anger makes me a monster or sometimes I act like a monster when I'm angry. And what comes to mind for me is the Hulk, right? This green monster pops out of us And out of nowhere, we go from being this demure person to this big, angry being. And I think one of the things I love from the recent Marvel movies is that we see that his anger can be used as a superpower, but it also can be a really destructive force. And so today, what we're going to be talking about is the difference between using the anger destructively and using it constructively. Okay, before we get started with this episode, I want to give everyone a trigger warning. Big trigger warning. We're going to be talking about anger, and with that is going to come up, talk about aggression, abuse, particularly physical abuse and verbal abuse. So if that's really triggering for you and you are not ready to talk about that, please take care of yourself and turn off this episode, and we will talk about other things next week. It's not going to get very graphic, but we are going to be mentioning that, and I am going to be talking about my own experiences. So if that's not something you're ready to handle, please take care of yourself, or if you decide to proceed forward and it becomes too much for you, there is no shame in turning things off and engaging in some self-care. 
I don't want to re-traumatize anyone, but it is important to talk about these things so that we can understand how patterns develop and why we have the patterns that we do so that we can have compassion for ourselves and we can love ourselves through healthy change. With that said, let's get into this episode. So often anger gets demonized in our society because we see so many people deal with anger in an unhealthy way. And because we have so few examples, in fact, I can't think of any examples before I got into mental health and working with a therapist and really studying emotions, I didn't have very many or any examples of healthy anger. So when we don't see healthy examples of anger, we start to demonize the emotion because we think that the only way we can deal with anger is in an unhealthy manner. And when we see people dealing with anger in these different unhealthy manners, because there's not just one unhealthy way to deal with anger, there's actually three main unhealthy ways to deal with anger. And when we see that happening, we think, okay, anger is bad, but anger is just an emotion. And as I'm going to say over and over again in this podcast, feelings are neither good nor bad. They just are. Feelings are just communication from our inner knowing, from our inner selves, from our subconscious to our conscious self. It is information about what we're experiencing, what we believe, what we value, what we want, and it's communicating to us about the experiences around us and our environment. Now, a lot of you said, I hate feeling anger. It freaks me out. And there's a lot of reasons a lot of valid reasons why we are freaked out by anger. One of them is that it is an uncomfortable feeling. Just physiologically, anger makes us uncomfortable. We start to sweat, our heart races, our muscles get tight, we breathe heavier. I mean, it can be a really uncomfortable feeling. But then on top of that, we talked about how we haven't seen many healthy anger examples. And we've seen anger, we've seen people act out of anger in ways that are destructive, that destroy trust, that actually physically harm other people or emotionally harm other people. And we don't want to be those kind of people. I don't think any of us are like, you know what I really want to be is I really want to be a destructive person that hurts other people. I don't think we go around wanting to suck on purpose, right? We talked about that. People don't go around sucking on purpose. Thank you, Brene Brown. We love that that phrase in our house. So we act out of anger a lot of times because we don't know what to do with anger. It's not been taught to us how to handle anger and move through it. And we developed our own unhealthy patterns to deal with this big emotion. And it left us feeling bad or ashamed. And because this sort of bad feeling, this kind of uncontrollable feeling is such a universal experience, we've labeled anger itself as bad, and we try to avoid it or control it, right, or suppress it or just get over it. We try to bypass it, but that actually leads to more problems. Now, there's four main patterns that we can use to deal with anger. And three of them are unhealthy, and one of them is healthy. We're going to talk about the unhealthy responses first. 
then we're going to kind of talk about why we get stuck in those unhealthy responses before we move into the healthy response and how we can even get there. The three unhealthy responses are aggression. So we can react in an aggressive way. We go on the physical or verbal attack against what we feel like is threatening us or hurting us. We could become passive aggressive. This usually looks like sulking or blaming. I think all of us have experienced this at least a little bit in religious transition. Every client I have at least has one person in their life or they themselves have a passive aggressive way of dealing with anger where we deny that we're angry and we say we're okay, but then we make sarcastic remarks or we kind of give people the cold shoulder or we don't invite people places, or we make it known that that person is just not a favorite anymore. And we do these little subtle things to kind of poke and prod and get back at the other person. The last unhealthy way is suppressive, where we bottle it up or we bury it, and we can often pretend like, we didn't feel anger at all. Sometimes what we do here is we might change it into a different emotion. So I got really good at suppression. For instance, as a child, it really wasn't safe for me to feel anger in my household growing up. The grownups in my life had such an aggressive anger style, and there was so much shame wrapped up in that aggressive anger style that I learned to suppress anger around adults at least. I became aggressive sometimes around other kids, but around adults, I learned to suppress my anger and turn it into sadness. And so if I was really angry or I felt like life was really unfair or my parents were treating me really unfairly or they had hurt me, I would cry and I would get sad because what would happen is if I suppressed it, if I turned it into sadness... And I honestly thought I was sad. I honestly didn't believe I was angry. I honestly thought I was sad. I would say probably 90% of the time. If I turned it into sadness, then I often got compassion from the adults in my life. I didn't get further emotionally or physically hurt. And I was able to move the aggression along to a place where we made sort of a peace we got to a standstill quicker. I was not often the person that provoked aggression, but I was often a person that was in the room with the aggression. And I feel other people's emotions very deeply, which is probably part trauma response and part just natural gift. But I got really good at feeling other people's emotional energy. And so I could feel other people's anger and it felt like my own anger sometimes. And sometimes it definitely was my own anger, but I would turn it into sadness. And sometimes my sadness became a protective mechanism in that when I would cry, it would stop the aggressive outburst, even if that outburst wasn't directed toward me. So I learned that tears were acceptable and not only were they acceptable, they could be protective sometimes. The faster I could cry, the faster the aggression or the physical or verbal abuse would stop. <laughs> that just makes me really sad for little me. I'm going to take a minute really quick and just kind of acknowledge. 
you guys are hearing me talk about this very clinically, but it still really affects me what younger me went through. It took a long time for me to even be able to label what happened when the adults in my life were angry as abuse because the adults in my life were also wonderful and they built us up and they did so many good things for us. So to acknowledge this part of my childhood is really difficult for me even still. And learning that it can be a paradox has actually been really helpful that I can feel a lot of loving, gentle, kind, grateful feelings towards the adults in my life and also recognize that there were moments that were highly abusive and traumatic for me as a child where I felt unsafe. And it sort of shaped my feelings of safety and my feelings of attachment with the caregivers in my life. I have some tears rolling down my cheeks right now because this is still hard to admit and it may be hard for you to admit too. I want to be really real with you guys that just because I'm talking about this in a very clinical manner as I'm telling you my story, it's still painful. Mainly because I just feel so sad for younger me that had to deal with that, that had to develop these trauma responses. But I also feel really sad for my caregivers that they had so much trauma and their own patterns that they had to develop in order to keep themselves safe. We were just traumatized children, traumatizing more children. And I've had my own traumatizing moments with my kids because of my upbringing. And I think all of us have patterns that we develop, maladaptive patterns, if you will, that we developed toward anger because we didn't have healthy coping mechanisms and healthy patterns modeled for us. So most of us learned our patterns in childhood either by copying what the adults in our life modeled for us or by really watching what behaviors got reinforced or by really learning what was allowed. So let's go back to my childhood really quick because that's the childhood I know the best. So in my childhood, what would happen is I had aggression modeled for me. In fact, one of the caregivers in my life was a little bit like a pressure cooker. They would suppress, they would suppress, they would suppress until they couldn't suppress anymore. And then they would explode in a fit of rage. And they had learned suppression because their own caregiver growing up was also a very aggressive person when they got angry. And it was exacerbated with alcohol and exacerbated with, you know, work schedules and stress and all of that sort of thing and money troubles and just all of that. Divorce, there were a lot of things that added stress into my parents' family of origin. My parent, when they were a child, really struggled to express anger in a healthy way too and didn't have that modeled very well for them. And so as an adult, and granted, they were my parent when they were very young themselves, practically a child themselves, they were doing their best to deal with anger. And so they were trying so hard not to be their dad. And I know you guys know what this is like, because I've had moments where I've tried not to be my parents. And so we have a tendency to try to do the opposite, right? So we either become our parents, we give into it, and we model what our parents did, Or we try to do the opposite of what our parents did. And often it's not healthy either because it's just the opposite. So like the opposite of aggression would be passive aggression or suppression, right? 
So we try some other strategy and usually it's not a healthy strategy. So I learned from my caregiver that when you got really, really, really angry and you were the adult, when you were the big person in the room, you were allowed to lose control, to throw things, to break things, to hit people, to scream at people, to say really mean things. You got to do all of that because you were the big person in the room. And so I would model that behavior when I was the big person in the room sometimes. When I was watching my siblings as a babysitter, sometimes if they push my buttons, I would fly into a rage and I would throw things or rip people's homework or scribble on their stuff or, you know, do something destructive to one of their toys because I was the big person. And it was okay for me to be angry because I was the biggest. But when I was the child in the room with a bigger adult, I learned to suppress my anger because anger wasn't allowed around bigger people, around people with more power or authority. Because if they had more power or authority and I got angry, it triggered their anger and it got bigger. So it wasn't safe to feel anger of my own when I was around people who were bigger or had more authority. And so I learned in those situations when it wasn't safe to express anger and to let it out when I wasn't with weaker people, then I had to suppress my anger. And when I suppressed my anger, then I would subvert it into sadness. That was my way of suppressing it is I would make anger into sadness. And I did this subconsciously. It's not like I decided, you know what? Anger is not safe. I'm going to change this into sadness. No, that's not how this worked. The way it worked was immediately I felt anger and my subconscious brain was like, warning, danger, you're around somebody that is throwing things. You could be next. We're changing this into sadness because the last time we got sad, it actually ended the scary stuff quicker. And so even to this day, I can make myself cry at the drop of a hat. I can make myself produce tears on command because it was a protective mechanism for me. So not only can I read the environment, I read people's body language so well. I can tell when someone tenses up, when their jaw gets tense. I can tell when someone's headed into an angry state. I read really minute body movements because of my childhood trauma with anger, which has become a wonderful gift as a coach. Really traumatic for younger me, but it was also a survival mechanism. And as soon as I would see that happen, I could turn on the tears, not because I was trying to be manipulative, but because I was trying to protect myself and my siblings. I could turn on the tears because it would get compassion from my caregivers and it would wind down their anger. It would bring out the humanity in them and it would quiet the anger and help them gain control. Now, it also brought up shame. So it also brought up shame for my caregiver, and I then would have to do a lot of caregiving for them to reassure their shame so that they would get back to equilibrium. Because in that shame place, if we didn't take care of the shame from that shame place, we could go into a rage again. So anger and shame were really closely related. I'm going into a lot of detail here, but follow me. I have a feeling that a lot of you have similar experiences. I've spent a lot of time really kind of deconstructing the anger cycle in my childhood. We either learn patterns by copying what our parents do, or 
we look to see what behavior gets rewarded. My tears got rewarded with shorter anger attacks most of the time. Not always. It wasn't a fail-safe. We had shorter rage outbursts when I or someone in the family would cry. If my brother or sister cried, they got really good at doing that too. Then it would be over quicker. And then we also learned behavior by seeing what was allowed. So if I got angry and sassy back, if I stood up and got into fight mode where I defended myself or defended my sibling, then it would get worse and I might get physically attacked along with my sibling or I might be screamed at. It would get scary. Okay. So when we're talking about these things, know that we're picking up lots of different information from body language. We're noticing what makes the anger worse. We're noticing, you know, what brought things on. You may have had a passive aggressive parent. You may have had a suppressive parent. You may have had one of each and you learn different things from them. So take a moment and get curious about what the anger pattern was in your family. What was modeled for you? When people got angry, what happened? Did you have a parent that you never saw get angry? We know that that's impossible. All humans feel anger. Was it possible that they were suppressing it, turning it into something else, spiritually bypassing it? Just, oh, this is a bad feeling. I'm going to give it to God. And now it's not mine to deal with anymore. Now it's God's to deal with. What was happening? Did your parents pretend like they weren't angry, but then just kind of made jabs at you or whoever they were angry at? Did they talk about people behind their back and vent, but then act really nice to them to their face? Did they give people the cold shoulder or did they sulk a lot? Or did you hear a lot of blaming language? Because that's a passive aggressive thing too. Like this wouldn't have happened if so-and-so didn't do this. If there's a lack of responsibility, a lot of times there's some passive aggression there. So no matter what unhealthy pattern you lean towards or several, I've used all three of these at different times. I still can reach for these sometimes when I'm feeling really small and powerless. If a situation feels really, really overwhelming, we reach for anger and we reach for the anger pattern that we feel like is going to protect us the most and is going to help us get what we need to feel safe. But all of these patterns, whether it's aggression or passive aggression or suppression, all of these patterns keep us in something that's called stage one anger. Stage one anger, according to Dr. Marsha Cannon, is protective anger. It's that instinctive, reflexive hit of adrenaline that we get It is the physiological responses that we get to prepare us for fight or flight. It is the rapid heartbeat. It's the increased blood flow. It's the tension in the muscles. It's the tunnel vision. It's all of it. The slow digestion, all of it. All of that prepares us to protect ourselves. It makes us feel bigger and faster than the perceived threat. It makes us feel more powerful because we feel powerless in the moment. And it gives us a hit of adrenaline so we can move and get out of harm's way. Now, we don't choose to feel stage one anger. Like I said, it is very reflexive. We feel threatened. Stage one anger happens. We have an anger reflex. We can, however, choose to move into stage two anger. 
So once we no longer need that protective boost, we can then get curious about the anger and it can become a stage of awareness and growth. But a lot of us don't choose to move into that stage and we get stuck in what's called a stage one loop. So why do we get stuck in the protective stage of anger? The first reason, and there are a lot of reasons, we're just going to go over a couple of them. The first reason is we don't know how to work with and through our anger. A lot of us, like I said, we're not given models of healthy anger patterns. We weren't shown how to productively move through our anger or how to sit with our anger and learn from it. And when we're not sure how to healthily move through our anger, we can cope by stuffing it, acting it out, or doing our best to bypass it until the next angering experience happens. And this can create a cycle that makes us feel stuck and helpless, which actually creates even more anger. And the reason that it creates even more anger is because there are three triggers to anger. The first one, and I think we talked about this in the last episode, the first one is we judge the situation as unfair or hurtful in some way or wrong. So first we decide this is unacceptable and I deserve better. The second one is we feel unable to easily and calmly right the wrong. So we don't feel powerful enough or equipped enough to easily and calmly right the wrong. We may feel like we've exhausted all of our options or that there are no options available to us or that the problem's just too big. And think about that when we feel powerless and there's a big problem, we're more likely to get angry because we need that power boost. We need to feel bigger than the problem. So we get that hit of anger. And what happens here is when we get stuck in the stage one loop, we can feel helpless. We can feel like, why can't I get past this anger? I have a problem. It keeps coming back. Why can't I forgive? Why can't I move on? Why can't I just be happy? And it makes us more likely to feel angry again because it's a recurring problem that just re-emphasizes our feeling of powerlessness. So that's the second thing that triggers anger. And the third is that the experience is troubling enough that we can't just tolerate it or let it go. And so what happens is we have this wrong that happens. We don't feel equipped to solve the problem. And then on top of that, we're like, I I can't just let this go. This is a big enough problem. I can't move past it and I can't let it go. It's really bothering me. This is a big problem for me. When we get stuck in the loop, we actually add to the anger situation because the recurring anger brings even more feelings of helplessness or smallness or out of controlness. And that can make us feel shame, especially if we have stories that feeling anger is bad or that only bad people get mad, right? Now, the second reason we can get stuck in a stage one loop is because We hang on to our anger as a way to express our refusal to condone someone else's behavior. Who here has ever stayed mad so that the other person would finally admit that they were sorry and come to apologize to us? Has anyone else ever done that? Because I certainly have. It's funny because I can think of several times I've done that, maybe with my siblings growing up. But I've done that with other family members before or even friends. Hung on to my anger And my anger pattern, like kept playing out my anger pattern 
as a way for them to know I didn't approve of what they did to me. It can be a very ineffective way to try to communicate boundaries. But what happens is when we stay angry and we hang on to our anger pattern as a way to let the other person know that what they did was wrong, it doesn't actually work. Have you noticed that? Very rarely does it ever work because the other person either doesn't notice or they don't care about the anger you directed them. Or if they do care and they do notice, often they don't know why we're angry and we haven't had a mature conflict conversation with them. We haven't initiated that. We're just staying in our anger pattern. And most of the time, the person we're angry with hasn't been given the tools to have a mature conflict conversation either. Neither of us have healthy conflict tools. So I'm just staying angry and they're just withdrawing. They're staying away because they don't know how to have the conversation. So it's not effective because we never come to resolution and I just stay angry and they stay either aloof or they don't care and it pisses us off more, right? Think about that. The crazy thing is, is we end up punishing ourselves in this scenario instead of the other person. The other person is usually not punished. They're either unaware or they don't care or they end up just moving on or like brushing it under the carpet because they don't know how to start the conversation with you. The third thing I want to talk about is that sometimes we stay in a stage one loop because we blame someone or something else for our anger. Who here has ever done that? Sometimes we say, that person makes me so angry. Or this situation makes me so angry. And here's something I really want to bring up is we really need to watch our language because I think we really believe that other people have the capability and the power to make us angry. And they don't. They can create a situation in which our stories about how things should be or are supposed to be or what is owed to us may bring up anger for us to alert us to what's going on. But our anger isn't actually caused by the other person. Our anger is caused by our perception of what happened and our perception of our ability to handle it. I'm going to say that one more time because it really took a while for it to sink in with me. Our anger isn't caused by the other person. The other person might do something really terrible, right? But if we perceive ourselves as powerful and capable enough of handling the situation, we don't get angry. We just handle it. It's only when we perceive what the other person is doing as awful and unfair and we feel like we're not capable of handling it satisfactorily for ourselves or for other people. When we feel like we're out of options or we don't know what to do or we feel like our hands are tied, that's when we get angry. No one is necessarily making us angry. It's our perception of our ability to handle it. So when we use the language of they make me angry, we're actually giving away our responsibility, but we're also giving away our power. So we're already feeling powerless. We're already feeling like we're not up to the challenge to solve whatever it is that's happened. But when we say, you make me angry, it's like we're giving away even more of our power. And this is something that I find so interesting is in this place, 
where we're blaming other people, where we're saying, you make me so angry, guess what we focus on? In this stage one loop where we're blaming other people, I'm focused on getting you to change or whoever it is or whatever it is that made me angry. I'm focused on getting that to change, which I have no control over. And it adds to that feeling of I have no power here. I have no control. I can't make you apologize. I can't make you make it right. I can't make things more fair in the world. I can't make you love me. And it makes me feel powerless and it keeps this anger loop going. And I think sometimes we get in this loop of blaming other people for our anger and trying to make them change because it feels safer to blame them and to try to get them to change their behavior than it does to get curious about what's going on inside of us. I think sometimes the things that are going on inside of us feel so scary and we feel so powerless We don't want to look. But when we're willing to look, when we're willing to really get curious about what's going on inside of us, we take back our power. Yeah, we can't make the world fair, but we can decide what we do have power over and what we're going to work on to make this situation better. Yeah, we might not be able to make that person love us or respect us or be kind to us. We can't make them change. But what we can do is we can decide where our boundaries are. We can have difficult conversations with ourselves and with others about where we're letting people cross our boundaries. And we can then put in measures to protect ourselves from the harm that comes from other people. So if you find yourself saying, that person makes me so angry or this situation makes me so frustrated and angry... Really look at the situation and figure out what is going on for you and what do you feel like you have power over? What could you do in order to make yourself feel safe and empowered again? Now, we've spent quite a bit of time talking about unhealthy responses to anger, and there is a healthy response to anger, and that is assertiveness. And I feel like this last one really brings us into assertiveness. So what is assertiveness? What does it look like? So assertiveness is the ability to clearly and confidently communicate feelings, experiences, wants, and needs, and boundaries without getting aggressive, is what one source said. Another one said, assertive people can communicate their desires while still considering the rights, needs, and wants of others. If you're an assertive person, you communicate clearly, fairly, and with empathy. You're able to honor what you need to feel safe while also honoring the other person's perspective and honoring their humanity. Assertive people are looking for a win-win. They're looking for something that gets their needs met, but also honors the other person's needs. But this requires vulnerability and shame resilience to communicate and problem solve in this way. Because what's got to happen is I have to get introspective with myself. I have to figure out where my boundaries are. I have to figure out what's okay and what's not okay with me. Then I have to be able to clearly communicate what is okay and what is not okay. I have to be able to have a plan to protect myself if the other person chooses not to respect my boundaries. Because remember, we can't control other people's behavior. And boundaries are never about controlling other people. 
Whenever we find ourselves trying to control another person's behavior, know that we are in that stage one loop, right? We're in that place where we're trying to control other people so that they don't make us angry instead of deciding where our boundaries are and how we're going to protect ourselves. Boundaries are always about what I'm going to do in order to change my reality, in order to protect myself and keep myself safe. I communicate that with other people so that they can choose to respect boundaries, but I can't make them respect boundaries. So let's say I have a parent that continues to preach to me on the phone. I can decide I'm not okay with that. These kinds of conversations are not the kinds of conversations I'd like to have on the phone. And I can communicate that to my parents. I can say, hey, I really want to have a close relationship with you right now. I'm not comfortable talking about religion at all. We can talk about the kids. We can talk about our jobs. We can talk about funny shows we're watching on TV. We can talk about new hobbies we're picking up. But right now, I really don't want to talk about religion while I'm healing. I need some space in order to figure things out on my own. And I need that to be a topic that's off the table right now. We communicate what we're okay with and what we're not okay with, but we also communicate what we need to do in order to protect ourselves. So we communicate, I understand that religion is a really big part of your life, but I need you to understand that it's so painful for me right now that if you bring up religion, I'm going to tell you I love you. I'm going to hang up the phone. And then if you want to, adding on, and we can try again at this time. People who want to be an intimate part of your life need to know what's okay and what's not okay. That's how we create trust. And so in order to do that, our anger lets us know where our boundaries have been crossed. Anger is a great way for us to find out where our boundaries are. And our boundaries will change as we mature and grow and evolve as humans. And so what might have been okay earlier in a relationship with someone might not be okay now because of different context or because of a different understanding or things that have happened in the past. It may have been okay to talk about religion with your parents before because religion wasn't a touchy topic, but right now it's a touchy topic. My boundary is I don't want to talk about it, but we can talk about all of these other things. If you can't honor and respect that, please know I'm going to have to hang up the phone in order to protect myself and allow myself to heal, but we can try again at another time. Now, I know there are some of you like me that are like, okay, when I'm angry, there is no way I can have this kind of conversation. There's no way I'd be able to communicate with my parents without yelling and screaming or without completely shutting down or without just getting really sarcastic. How in the world do I go from feeling anger to assertiveness where I can communicate my needs while respecting the humanity of the other person? How do I, how do I even do that? So how do we get from protective anger that wants to lash out or wants to suppress and run away or wants to just like go and hide but like make jabs from behind our shield How do we get from that protective anger space in stage one into this kind of communication in stage two? 
We're going to go through a couple of practices. This is by no means an exhaustive list, but this is a great place to get started. The first one, if you remember from the conflict conversation that I had with Kevin back in February, we talked about timeouts because conflict and anger is often about a trigger. And we have our dances, especially in our relationship with people. We have a conflict dance. I do this thing, it triggers the other person. They do this thing that triggers me. One of the things that Kevin talked about was taking a time out. It's okay to say, okay, we need to take a break, but we'll come back to this after we've calmed down. We'll come back to this in half an hour or an hour or later tonight. Having a planned time out, like once you feel those physiological symptoms in your body, you feel your heart pumping, you feel the red cheeks, you you feel the tunnel vision, you feel the tightness in your muscles, you feel yourself clenching your jaw. When you notice those physiological symptoms, giving yourself permission to take a time out, to disengage, to breathe can be so helpful. Now, granted, sometimes our anger is there for survival. And rightly so, sometimes it is the only way we're going to survive a situation. So when you feel safe, when you feel like you're at a place where you can take a break, step away and deep breathe. Some people will count to the count of 10. Some people will count to 100. I like to square breathe. So I breathe in for a count of four. I hold it for a slow count of four. I breathe out for a count of four. And I hold it for a count of four. The whole reason we take a break and we breathe is to bring our prefrontal cortex online. Because when we go into fight or flight mode, we are in the amygdala. We are in our lizard brain. It is all about survival at this point. We feel threatened. We're in survival mode. We are in our alligator brain. We are there ready to snap someone's head off. Our mammalian brain, our connective brain is totally offline. Our prefrontal cortex and all of our executive function, offline. We are operating from a very small part of our brain that is very reflexive and will do whatever it takes to survive. We are not thinking about connecting and loving and feeling empathy for one another. It is not a great place for problem solving and for assertiveness. Don't try to be assertive. Don't try to communicate your needs when you're in the protective anger stage because it will come out as aggression or passive aggression. Go someplace where you can breathe and bring your higher functioning brains online. Because remember, stage one anger is reflexive. The more you practice awareness, oh, I'm feeling anger, and you're able to speak to that, you take a moment to get curious with it, allows you to bring your executive functioning brain back online a lot faster. This whole process is going to get faster and faster. You're going to get better at it. You're going to start noticing your anger before you're in full-blown anger. You're going to start noticing the moment your heartbeat starts to increase. But we got to start somewhere. When I very first started this practice, sometimes I didn't even catch it until after I had the angry outburst or after I said, no, I'm fine. Okay? It's all right if you missed the exit. Remember what Kevin said in that 
conflict conversation we had in February. If you miss the exit, get off at the next exit, circle around, and try again. That's what we're doing here. So if you carry all the way through with your anger pattern, it's okay. Your anger pattern is there to protect you. You learned it as a way to keep yourself safe. Give yourself compassion for that. You have very good reasons for developing these patterns. We're changing them so that you can get more of what you want, which is safety and connection in your relationships and a sense of empowerment to fix problems in your life. And that way you don't have to feel angry as often. The more we fix the things that are frustrating us and making us angry, guess what happens? The less anger we feel. So the more we can get into assertive anger responses, the more we fix a lot of the things that are making us angry in the first place, and we carry around a lot less anger, a lot fewer triggers. So we spend a lot less time in this uncomfortable place. Remember, we don't like to feel anger because it's uncomfortable and it's uncomfortable for a reason so that we will move into stage two anger and get curious with it, learn from it and make healthy changes. The first one is take a time out and breathe. And it is okay if this happens after an outburst, if that's where you catch yourself at the very beginning, no shame, you caught yourself. I don't care if you catch yourself after it happens, in the middle of it happening, right before it happens, or right when you start feeling that increased blood flow. It does not matter. Catching it at all is progress, okay? Catching, oh my gosh, I just did my pattern. Let me slow things down and let me get curious about this. It is okay if that's where you start, Maybe next time you catch yourself a little bit sooner and a little bit sooner. It is not about perfection. It is about progress, getting you closer and closer to understanding what's going on beneath the surface so that you can make healthy changes and resolve the things that are making you feel like you need that power boost from anger to be able to deal with them. Okay, second thing, get curious with the anger. You're going to hear me say get curious so many times. Like that's going to be my tagline. You're going to be like, oh, there's Terry Hales. She's Miss Get Curious. I am all about getting curious with what's going on because when we show up with curiosity and without judgment, we learn so much, not just about ourselves, but the world and other people. We expand our ability to learn a hundredfold, a thousandfold, a millionfold when we can get curious and put judgment to the side. So get curious. Acknowledge any stories coming up about what feeling angry means about you. That's one of the first things. What am I feeling about feeling anger? What kind of thoughts do I have about feeling anger? Awareness is the first step to healing. So bringing those things to awareness. What thoughts am I having about even feeling anger? is going to tell you a lot about what's under the surface and the reason you're dealing with your anger the way you are. What other painful feelings are under the anger? What vulnerability is the anger protecting? Remember, your anger is there to protect you, to make you feel bigger and stronger. 
What is that vulnerable thing that is underneath the anger that it's protecting? Is it a feeling of loneliness? A feeling of rejection? A feeling of shame? A feeling of pain or hurt? What's going on under there? What expectations are you hearing in your head? These are going to often sound like should or must. What lens are you looking at the experience through? What rules do you feel like were broken? This is a great place to journal. What made this feel so unfair or unjust? What are the unwritten rules, the unacknowledged rules that we're operating by here? Let's bring those up into the conscious where we can really examine them. And then I like to ask myself, are there any other perspectives here? What other lenses could be used? Are there any other ways to look at this problem? Are there any other ways to look at this situation? Are there any factors I'm not taking into account? I want to see this issue from as many different aspects as possible. I want to see it from the way that I'm looking at it that caused the anger, but then I want to look and see, is there are there other ways I could have looked at this problem? Then from there, what do you want to change? What are the options available to you? When you tap in, what is your first gut reaction? What do I want to do about this? That first gut reaction is usually the thing you're trying to avoid. When we get angry with somebody because they've stepped on our toes, a lot of times we feel like we want to tell them like, hey, that's not okay. But then we feel like it's not nice or it might hurt our relationship with them or they might reject us or all of those things. We have all the reasons. So we use the anger to protect us and protect those vulnerable feelings. But the anger is telling you it's time to have a conversation to make things better here, to make healthy changes here. A question I like to ask myself during this stage is how do I take my personal power back in this situation? So for instance, you might communicate boundaries. What's okay and what's not okay? Under what circumstances, under what situations, be as crystal clear as possible and create that plan of how you're going to protect yourself. Remember, it's not about the other person respecting your boundaries It's about you knowing where the boundaries are and what you're going to do to protect yourself if those boundaries are crossed. Boundaries are all about your behavior and what you're going to do to protect yourself. The way I like to look at it when I was first setting boundaries because I was raised where boundaries felt really rude and mean. And that can often happen whenever we're first learning to be assertive, especially if we've been raised in a boundaryless culture or a boundaryless family. When we first start setting boundaries, in some families, love equals no boundaries. Love means I can do whatever I want to do, and we just love and accept each other. But trust can't grow in that environment. Trust needs boundaries. Trust needs to know what is and is not okay with you, and I need to know what is and is not okay with me, right? So when we very first start setting boundaries, it can be really difficult because our families may not be used to it. It feels foreign. It feels mean. It feels rude. It feels like we don't love them because the story in our family is if you love me, you have no boundaries. 
And so what I started thinking of is I'm setting boundaries to protect my inner child. I adopted her. She is mine. She's my responsibility to protect. And I protect my inner child as I would one of my own children. When I'm setting boundaries, I'm deciding what is and is not okay. And if someone crosses my boundaries, how am I going to protect my inner child so that I let her know that I'm on her side, she can trust me, I'm the kind of friend she can lean on, she can feel safe with me. That's how I look at boundaries. So my boundaries aren't about changing the other person, it's about protecting my inner child, protecting my vulnerable self, being a good friend to myself, and making sure that I protect that person the way I would protect anyone else that I love dearly and care about. Okay, The other thing that you might hear whenever you're asking yourself, how do I take my power back, is maybe you hear, it's time to manage your expectations. So for instance, if you're having anger with your family, when you examine your expectations, the shoulds, the rules that were broken, you may hear things like, family should be your best friends, or family should always support you, or family should love you no matter what. And a lot of these things were ingrained into us either through the families that we were raised with, those were things that we heard a lot, or they were modeled for us in movies, or we heard them in religion. And it may be time to examine those. Maybe in a perfect world, we would be born in a family where everybody gets us, accepts us, and we're best friends. But that might not be what your family can offer you. So how can you change your expectations in a way that empowers you? How can you change your expectations in a way that allows you to untether from something that may or may not happen in your family? You might change it to something like instead of family should be your best friends, maybe there is something that's a little more realistic like I would love to have intimate relationships with my family when they're ready to have difficult conversations. Or my family might not be able to support me, but I am capable of finding people who will. I have a client that said family are the people I choose to be intimate with. Just even changing the expectation of what family is or who family is created a sense of empowerment for my client to then reconcile the fact that their family couldn't be there for them the way they wanted to, but that they had the power to create family. Family wasn't just who they were born to and who they shared blood with, but family could be anyone that they could love and trust and who would love and trust them in return. So I invite you to slow down, first of all, with your anger. Get curious with it. Ask it questions. I sometimes treat my anger as though it's a embodied entity. I'll sit down with it, ask it questions, journal with it, get curious with it, try to look at it from different perspectives. And then I ask it what it needs us to change. And I'll look at my expectations and I'll look at the thoughts I'm having in my head and my beliefs about how things should work. And I'll look at the places where I'm blaming other people and ask how I can take my power back. And then I make a plan to move forward. 
with that power to make healthy changes. And I think the last thing I want to say as we're wrapping up here is remember it's okay to try things on. Whenever you're feeling angry, you may feel like there's several different things you can try. And it's always okay to try something on. Try a healthy change. Try a change and see if it works for you. Remember, it's always okay to keep what works and discard what doesn't and try something else on until you find that perfect fit for your life. You have the power to make healthy changes in your life. You are not powerless. And remember, when you feel small and you feel powerless and you get angry, just get curious with it. Learn from it. Allow yourself to get to know yourself better from this powerful emotion. And then allow yourself to move forward, try things on, and make those healthy changes. And over time, what's going to happen is you're going to recognize your anger sooner. You're going to be able to move into assertive responses to anger instead of aggressive, passive-aggressive, or suppressive responses to anger. You're going to be able to set healthy boundaries, be very clear about your expectations, about your wants and needs, and you're going to be able to be more empathic and hold more space for another person's humanity as you're getting your needs met. You're going to be able to create more win-win situations and you're going to be able to create more intimate relationships. Your anger isn't the enemy. Your anger is a gift. Your anger is trying to teach you more about yourself and help you make healthy changes to get more of what you want. More connection, more intimacy, less frustration, more joy. And we do this from moving out of that protective anger into that reflective anger that helps us learn and grow. Thank you so much for joining me today. I actually think I really love these headphones. It was kind of cool to hear myself talk and I can actually hear my recording if it ever like skipped or if I ever bumped the stand. So I think I'm going to be doing this a little bit more. Plus, I feel super fancy here in my closet amongst the laundry that I need to fold. And I look forward to talking with you guys about all of these anger things and really picking them apart, really getting curious with what our anger is telling us and helping us get to know ourselves better so that we can get positive change in our life that moves us closer to the lives we want to live and to lives that will bring us peace and calm and joy. Remember, if you're loving this, we are having some great conversations over in the Facebook group. So go over to the Facebook group. The link is in the show notes. It's called Emancipate Yourself. I think we have like 120 people in the group now. It is growing. I love that you guys are inviting your friends. We have people that are like starting their own posts now. I'm like, my mind is blown. I'm loving it over there. So make sure you head on over there. Also, if you're not part of the newsletter, I send out a newsletter every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. There's usually an overview of the most recent episode. Sometimes there are tools that are not in the episode that you get to utilize. 
or journal prompts. And always, you'll have the perk of being the first ones to know about new upcoming things, which there are some new upcoming things happening in the emancipated coaching world. So if you want to be up to date on all of that goodness, please head over to emancipatedcoaching.com, click on the newsletter, and I will send a newsletter straight to your inbox every Tuesday morning at 10 in the morning. And make sure you join the Emancipate Yourself group so that we can have lots of great conversations over there. Thanks, everyone, for joining. And I will see you next Sunday.